How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of the streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. Those are verses 40 to 49 of Psalm 78, uh, verses 40 to 72 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, September the 20th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our look at the book of uh, Esther today uh, in the fifth chapter, the first 14 verses there in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 to 22, and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verses 12 to 28. So we've got a long set of lessons today. The, the Gospel's kind of short, but the rest of them are quite lengthy, and there's a lot of ground covered. So remember with Esther... Um, there was a plot by Haman, who was the number two person in the kingdom below King Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus, whichever way you want to say it. Um, so there's a plot to kill the Jews simply because Mordecai, the Jew, won't bow down and and to Haman when he passes by. So he, he's angry at everybody, blames it on the Jews, offers to put you know, 750,000 pounds of silver into the king's treasury in order to secure his commitment to the destruction of the Jews, uh, which who he says are people who are who don't follow your laws, even though they're dispersed all through the kingdom, so they should be killed wherever they are. So Esther has said, fast for me for three days, fast and pray, and then on the third day, I'll do something. So that's where we pick up. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, which is a bidding to come into his presence. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, which is the acknowledgement that I'm here only because you've allowed me to be. <clears throat> and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And that's going to be a repeated refrain over and over in the next couple of days. You're going to hear it once more today. And remember, it's exactly the same thing that uh, Herod offered the daughter of his wife who had danced for him. He offered up to half the kingdom, and they asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So here, Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So let's do this one more time. This was so pleasant. Let's do it one more time. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But... (laughs) 
when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. I mean, everything can be perfect in the world, right? And then this one little thing upsets him so much. Of course, that would never happen to us, right? We never (laughs) allow one small thing to sort of overwhelm everything else. But that's what Haman does. So, So here, everything seems right in the world, except for there's this one guy who won't bow down when he walks by, who doesn't seem to respect him and doesn't seem to fear him. And it's a problem because he wants everybody's respect and everybody's fear, mostly without seeming to have the actual um, personal skills, let's say, to know that these people are only doing this because you have title and power. It has nothing to do with you personally. So here, Haman uh, is, is furious because Mordecai won't rise or tremble before him. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Really? Everything is worth nothing because you see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And and him sitting at the king's gate is not the problem. If he he did the proper obeisance to him, he wouldn't have a problem with it at all. He would be perfectly happy for Mordecai the Jew to sit at the gate if Mordecai the Jew respected him and bowed down before him. He'd be fine with that. Then his wife Zeresh and his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. That's seventy-five feet, by the way. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Wow. I mean, truly, it deserves death? The fact that Mordecai won't show you what you believe to be the respect that you are owed? And so now you're making this a bigger and bigger matter. And, and again, this is the thing that we've seen in the epistle lessons when, when pagans particularly oppose Paul, um, what they do, or even the Jews really. I mean, they'll, they'll bring forth some sort of charge that gets other people involved. Because if you just say, hey, he hurt my feelings, then people won't get involved with it because, well, that's between you and him. So you've got to make it a bigger issue. You've got to make it something more than it actually is to get other people to come to your side. right? And I've seen this a million times, and I'm positive that I've done it a million times in my life. There's no question um, that I've done this very thing. Because, you know, you, you want people to be on your side. You want people to... to to be upset at the same things you're upset with. And so you've got to make it somehow personal for them in such a way that, that they'll then take your side and get involved in it. And that's what Haman has to figure out how to do that with respect to Mordecai, particularly and personally, because there's already an edict that on such and such a date, all these Jews are going to be wiped out from the kingdom, but he can't wait for that. Not for Mordecai. Mm-mm. Nope, that's got to be done now because he's an uppity Jew. So you've got to deal with that, and, and that's Haman's whole logic. That's it. I mean, there's no logic to it. That's just what he thinks. So 
here in the gospel today in Luke three fifteen to 22 is the people were in expectation about John, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Now, if a Jew sold himself into slavery to another Jew, this untying of the sandal is one of the things that you couldn't ask that Jewish slave to do. You could ask a Gentile to do it, but it was considered to be too menial for a Jew, and it was too um, overlordly to ask a Jew to do that for you. There's, there's no distinction between two Jews in, in that way, and so to do that is to ask that person to demean themselves in a further way than they already have by having to sell themselves into slavery. So, so when John says, I'm not worthy to do that, I mean, he, he's like groveling at the feet, literally, of the one he's speaking of. He said, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. So John doesn't see the mission of Jesus, doesn't understand it, at least at this point, to be a, a message of salvation. He believes that it's judgment. And that's why John is at such pains to declare um, the, the gospel, which is preparation, which is repentance of sin. It's the reason John is so strident in his message regarding sin and regarding the need for repentance. And it's completely because he's convinced that that's the reason that Jesus or whoever this Messiah is, is coming, is for judgment. And, and if you thought, and you should think, <laughs> that the next time is about judgment, then we should have the same sense of urgency and the same sense of a burden over sin that John had. Every preacher in America right now, I can't speak for everywhere else, but in America at least, every preacher right now should be speaking about sin, should be speaking about the need to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. It's, it's incumbent upon us to raise that issue up, not push it down. We can't constantly talk about grace without talking about sin, because without the, the, the acknowledgement of sin, there's no way to actually receive grace. If it's a principle, it means nothing. If it's applied only to mercy given to sinners and, and pardon given to sinners because of the work Jesus did, not the work that you do, then, then it, it means something. If it's applied in that way, if it's applied in a way that says, this is something that I receive that I don't deserve, but I only get it because God sent his son to die for me. And therefore, because of Jesus, he puts away my sin. That's grace. If it's just God puts away sin because now he doesn't care about this stuff, then it's not grace at all. It's, it's a lie from the pit of hell. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. It doesn't sound like good news, does it? Except for it, 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 he's coming to judge, and he's coming to, to take the wheat into the barn and the chaff to burn with unquenchable fire. It doesn't sound like good news, but Luke says, yep, it is, because there's a solution for the problem. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, they, they were married to one another now, uh, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. Now, the, the reminder here is, is that Herod is a Jew. And so John's reproving, reproving him, not as a civil leader. He's reproving him because he's a Jew. 
He is applying the law to him equally because he's a Jew, no matter whether he is the tetrarch or a tax collector or anybody else. John was an equal opportunity offender. He, he told you the truth, and he didn't care who you were. He cared who you were to the extent that the way you apply the law changes given your situation. And so that's why he has to make those answers that he gives yesterday about, okay, I'm a tax collector. What do I do? I'm a soldier. What do I do? I'm just a guy. What do I do? That's the reason that he has to do that. And so with, with Herod, he's actually preaching the good news to him. Herod doesn't want to hear it. So now, so he had him in prison. Now, when the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You're my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, so God is, is acknowledging Jesus publicly, and this is the first time that the Father uh, acknowledges Jesus publicly. And so here, now, he, he has his imprimatur, okay? So at this point, you've gotten to this point, you've agreed to be baptized, now I'm well pleased with you. So you've gotten successfully to this place. So it's all good, right? So now just got to finish the race. That's the important thing. And so we can have those moments when we know that God is pleased with us, um, because of Jesus, because of our testimony concerning Jesus, but we still have to always finish the race and to finish it well and to run it differently than we did before Jesus came into our lives because it's meant to transform us. In the Acts lesson today, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Well, so he is the proconsul of Achaia. He's a Roman official. So why the Jews bring Paul to them, to the tribunal, to the, to the sort of civil authorities for telling people to worship God contrary to the Jewish law. I have no earthly idea. Paul is prepared to make his defense. He was about to open his mouth, but Gallio said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. In other words, I'm not going to educate myself on Jewish law, nor do I even care how they're violating it. If you were alleging that there was some violation of Roman law, then I would care. But it, that's your deal. This is your problem. Deal with it. Now, the problem is the reason they want to bring him before the tribunal is there's, there's not much they can do. So he, uh, uh, Gallio, drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So he didn't care at all. But so why did they choose Sosthenes? Why did they go after Sosthenes? What would be the point of that? Why didn't they go after Paul? Well, because he was the ruler of the synagogue. So he was a, he was a local official who was important in the Jewish community here in Achaia. And so the, the problem becomes then that, um, that they need to do something to someone. But it's odd because we were actually also told right before this that Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, and he had become a believer. So who is Sosthenes? Is he a ruler of a different synagogue? Is he, who is he? And we're not really sure, but Gallio didn't care. 
It didn't matter to him. This was all Jewish law mess. And as long as it didn't spill over, then then everything, you know, as far as he was concerned, was copacetic. Y'all need to deal with it, and you need to kind of shut up about it too. You don't want to make this a bigger deal than it than it should be because then it won't go well for any of you. So after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. So Luke is obviously with them in this moment because he's giving us a blow-by-blow account of this trip, even including Paul had taken a vow, and so now he's cutting his hair. He would have have taken a vow for a certain period of time not to cut his hair, and so now, obviously, that time has passed, and so at Centre he does this. And then they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. I don't have any idea why he would have said, nah, that's okay. I guess he thought the Lord was leading him somewhere else. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So he didn't hang around long. He just went in to the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews about Jesus. And then they asked him to stay longer. And he says, nah, no, 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 if God wants me to, I'll come back. So then he goes to Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church there and then went down to Antioch, which is where his missionary journey started. It was sort of his home base is what it kind of became after Barnabas came and got him and brought him there. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's visiting the churches that he's planted in the past. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, he was, since he is a native of Alexandria, he would have been a really well-educated man. There would have been reasons that he would have been in Alexandria. It was the great learning center for the empire. And so when he comes, if he's competent in scriptures, then, then he is, he's able certainly to, to, to be teaching these people. And so being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So basically what what we're saying is, is that he didn't know about Pentecost. He had no earthly idea that this second baptism, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, had happened. So he's only preaching everything he knew, which is the, the baptism of John, and then who Jesus became. So he's preaching him as Savior, He's preaching him as Lord, but he's not giving them the fullness of the gospel, which is the, which is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I would argue that there are many, many, many churches <laughs> who have done this same thing. In fact, I know there have been. There's no expectation of the current operation of the gifts of the Spirit, for instance, in the lives of many, many believers. We, we had a meeting with, with a, a great church here at one time, and, and talked to them about their prayer ministry, which I'd read about in a book. And so it happened that I knew the guy who was over that, and so we met with, with him and this uh, the lady who was the head of it, and they had a couple thousand people praying every single week. And so we sat down and talked and, and said, so what happens when one of those prayer groups hears from the Lord, and they have something that they need to communicate back to the church? And the response was, well, that's never happened before. Yeah, it has. You just don't encourage it. There's no mechanism for it. There's no mechanism for for you to be able to receive anything from the people of God. That's really odd to me. But that's the way most churches operate, to be honest with you. And so, but there's there's something missing. 
in those churches, no matter how great they are, there's something missing in those churches. It's the present action of the Holy Spirit to do the things that Jesus was doing that he said his followers would do even greater things. So he began, he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So he's doing a great job, but he just had an incomplete gospel. He had only essentially, well, he had the the gospel after the resurrection, but before Pentecost. So he's, he's missing an important piece, and that's the outpouring of the Spirit on all believers. And we always need to make sure that, that we have the entire story. We need to make sure that we're always submitting ourselves to God and, and asking for more and more of the Holy Spirit, that, that we're asking God to show up and show out, that we're expecting God to do great things. And, and the more we expect him to do great things, the more we'll see great things.